Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm uh, very, very excited about this, uh, this episode today. Alex, who have we got on today? You're excited. Alina, he flew in my great uncle's squadron. That's far more exciting for you. Yeah, I know. Far more exciting. Oh, John Nichols served in the Royal Air Force as a navigator for 15 years on active duty in the Gulf in 1991. His tornado bomber was shot down during a mission over Iraq, um, and he was captured, tortured, and held as a prisoner of war, um, paraded on television, provoking worldwide condemnation and leaving one of the most enduring images of the conflict. But we're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what he's done since. And that is to turn out some truly exceptional World War II literature, um, including one of my favourites of all time, Tail End Charlie's. Obviously, his best-selling Spitfire book. Uh, but I'm even more excited now because he has written a brand new book about the best plane in the history of planes, the Lancaster. John, welcome. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alina. Well, first of all, the best plane. That is going to start a serious argument with all of your uh, listeners, isn't it? Bring it. Bring it, because I'm not having it. It is the most... Uh, I cry whenever I see one. Whenever I get in the presence of one, I cry. My dad is going to have a few things. I can just hear the phone call going, Alina, <laughs> what, is this, what is this rubbish? For him, it's going to be uh, something completely different. But no, we, we... shush, Daddy Alina. It's my podcast. <laughs> I win. The end. Um, he likes the mosquito personally, but you know. Great aircraft. Great aircraft. Oh, there you go, Dad. Hear that one? It's a great aircraft. But it's not a Lancaster. Oh, <laughs> did you know what? I've been privileged to read this book already. Um, it's out. Uh, we're releasing this to coincide with the release of the book, which is the 28th of May, if I'm not incorrect. Um, and oh, I just can't wait for other people to read it so I can talk about it with them because it's brilliant. Because uh, it does exactly what Alina I love. It doesn't give you a dry list of facts about how people beat, built Lancasters and flew them. It talks about the people um, and it's fantastic. And you can just see uh, the relationships that John built with people while he was writing the book um, in, in the way that he talked about them. Oh, it's amazing. John, oh, it must Enough have been already. Journey. My, head, my head's getting big here. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. It's like my dream come true, a whole book about... Do you know what? I I just filmed a, a section on Lancasters for the new series of War Factories, and they just had to, like, they were like, Alex, stop getting inside. Alex, stop getting inside. Yeah, have, Did you go up and get in the one either at East Kirkby or uh, at the Battle of Britain Memorial flight? No, I've never been inside one. Oh, Only, do you know, they let you crawl through it, didn't they, at the War Museum oh, a few years ago, that section of fuselage, that's the closest i've ever been oh well they, obviously i mean they've got what well, the battle of britain memorial flight got one they're a bit protective quite rightly because there's mm. flies and it's what is it 70 
six years old now, so that's a bit of... Uh, and obviously there's the one at East Kirkby, the uh, Lincolnshire Aviation Heri Memorial Heritage Company, I think it is, the, at East Kirkby, the one that they've got their taxis around. And I've been up there a couple of times. Uh, they've been so kind to me up there. Um, let me, and they let me clamber in, and I've taken veterans up there on a number of occasions. I took one, um, one veteran, tail end Charlie, rear gunner, uh, oh, he must have been, I'm guessing, in his mid to late 80s at that point. And uh, the, you know the description of the, the rear gun turret of the Lancaster. It's basically, it's about the size of your wheelie bin, a perspex wheelie bin. And this guy, who, who was on, using a walking stick, was like a rat up a drainpipe when he saw it. He yeah. skipped, skipped on board. Crap, you've got to clamber through almost kind of a letterbox gap in the fuselage to get to it. But he was in that... He was in that <laughs> rear turret again, and he was back at war. It was an amazing thing to see, and we taxied him around in it as well. So, which was just fantastic. Oh, anyway, you're off already. Aren't you? Not really, because if you, the reason I am so excited, uh, we've already mentioned Fifteen Squadron. Uh, they flew yeah. Lancasters in World mm -hmm. War Two, and my great uncle was—he uh, was a tail end Charlie. He did do some flights in the rear gunner position. I kind of get the impression I haven't really done it in detail. I think he spent more time in the middle turret, but he definitely yeah. did fly in the rear um, section as well. Uh, so that's why I'm so excited. Um, and John, that was your squadron, wasn't it? Yeah, the 15 squadron was my squadron in Germany. So I started in the Air Force in 1981. I did five years as a, a technician, then got commissioned, navigator, went to Tornado GO1s in Germany in 1989. You ladies won't remember any of these things. <laughs> First Gulf War, obviously, uh, 1991. And uh, 15 Squadron was my first squadron. It was amazing. And I don't know if your great uncle ever went to any reunions uh, at, um, at all, Alex, but obviously uh, we had the 70, I think it was the 75th anniversary of 15 Squadron in 1990, just before the Gulf War. And we had about three or 400 veterans come over from the UK. Uh, uh, I think it's so, highly likely uh, he loved travelling in Germany he died in oh. 1992 but he was always on coach trips in Germany with my <laughs> great aunt going did you bomb this, did you bomb this, did you bomb this in front of the locals to which this shyest man you've ever met in your life would be like shut up, don't offend well, no, everybody we had about, I think there was about 300 of them because obviously you know, in 1990 there were still well, relatively young men then it was, uh, mm. you know, they, were, uh, they were still in the, the prime of their lives and it was fantastic and I think now, I don't know how many veteran members of 15 Squadron are left, maybe two or three, something like that. Uh, I know well, that all of his uh, crew have passed now. Yeah. Um, his best friend Don uh, died before him, I think. And the pilot, Angus, I think, was the last survivor. Um, and he, he died as well. But he was Australian. Um, I have a, a remembrance that he was supposed to be something. His family were like heirs to Woolworths or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he came over from Australia. But I've got all their photos of them sitting on the wing. Theirs was K King. They flew uh, at Potsdam, 15th of April, 1945. I always remember okay. that date because yeah. um, yeah. it's the date the Titanic sank. Uh, but yeah. So, uh, but we we can't just sit here and talk about my great uncle <laughs> and fifteen squadron. Uh, no, no, well, I could, I absolutely could. I'll send you the photos. <laughs> I'll send you the photos, John, and you can see the crew sitting on the wing and that. I've got pictures of them loading for that mission as well, um, in front of the aeroplane. Uh, but yeah, anyway, let, let's tell people the story of the Lancaster. So, Alina, you start you because you're more capable of being uh, professional about well, this. 
go on calm relax chill mm-hmm. but i just want to add before i do start you know i do love listening to family history and i can sit here and listen to that all day so i don't think anybody would truly really mind especially me mm-hmm. so but as you said we've got to get back on track we're going to be talking about the book so let's start at the beginning the development yeah i mean basically the much of the military industry is driven by war uh, and that certainly was the case in the Second World War with the development of all, almost every single technical advancement. So, you know, uh, as, the, as the war began, the, the Air Force was woefully under-equipped with the heavy bombers it would need to take the war to the heart of Germany. And when, you know, when it all kicked off, uh, nobody knew how long this was going to last. Nobody knew what it would mean. Nobody knew what people would do. But the notion was that this, people argue about this endlessly now, about the reality of World War II, but what it soon became apparent was it was a total war. And in that, today a war would never be conducted or fought or operated in that way. Back then, it was nation versus nation in an existential threat. Uh, And that meant taking the fight to the heart of Nazi Germany. It was an uncomfortable, it's an uncomfortable thing to think about, but it meant taking the fight, killing, destroying the, the means of the German nation to wage war. And to do that, we needed heavy bombers. And basically, we had, you know, we had lighter bombers. We had, you know, some of the thing, you know, some of the very early bombers, the bombers, the Blenheims, the Hamptons, the Whitleys. But we needed a much bigger, a massive bomber. And the, basically, the Lancaster came out of that need to wage war in the heart of Germany. And so we ended up with what became basically the Lancaster was a machine designed to carry a massive bomb load. That's, that's, what it, that's, what it, that's what it was. It wasn't designed for crew comfort. It wasn't designed for anything other than taking explosive weapons to the heart of Germany, and, which is a, a brutal thing to talk about, but that's the reality of war. Well, it's kill or be killed, isn't it? Because before we do this, you have the blitz. So, I mean, it, it is just the savage and sort of disgraceful nature of World War II is that it is total war um incorporating the civilians in a way that never happened in world war one um but talk to us before we got to the lancaster there was the manchester wasn't there yeah there's the manchester which was uh, the, the what you could call it the forerunner to the, the the lancaster but it was uh i think one of the chaps that i speak to for the book thomas murray uh sorry i didn't speak i used his personal diary because he's uh, uh sadly long gone um he called you know he described it as woefully underpowered uh, just it was basically not up to the job it wasn't reliable the engines weren't reliable they failed uh, regularly which is when you're flying a heavy bomber you don't want to lose an engine <laughs> especially on takeoff when you're fully loaded uh, so it just wasn't up to the job and from the manchester uh, again the development of technology during warfare is incredibly quick uh, the the lancaster came about uh, in 1941, 1942, um, and it was it was the development of that aircraft into what became the four-engined bomber, which was the Lancaster. Um, just briefly, then tell us uh, by 1941, the Lancaster has come into being. You've mentioned that it was essentially there to transport a massive bomb load, but what is it for people who aren't au fait with military aircraft in World mm-hmm. War Two? Describe a Lancaster bomber to us. Uh, a giant, giant machine, um, 69 feet in length. Well, that's kind of quite difficult to understand what 69 feet in length means. 102 feet wingspan. For me, if, you, if you've ever stood next to a Lancaster bomber, it's about 
20 feet, just over 20 feet tall. So it's about as high as the, uh, the, 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 the roof of a house. Um, and I took uh, uh, an old um, Lancaster veteran, a tail gunner. He said, it, most of the tail gunners weren't very tall by virtue of the space <laughs> they got into. Although there was, there was actually a couple of six-footers, and it must have been really cramped in there. Um, I took a, a tail gunner. I think uh, Ron must have been about, I don't know, five, eight or something like that, five foot eight, something like that. And Ron wasn't that much taller than the main wheel of the Lancaster. Yeah, I, I am about as tall as a wheel. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, it's a, gi- it's a giant, giant aircraft. If you ever get the chance to see one, you know, there's a few, there's a few on display. They are giant, giant machines. Yeah. Um, you know, they, 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 they could fly at kind of 200 plus miles an hour. But in many, in many ways, these kind of top, top trumps facts you know, service ceiling of 20, 23,000 feet, a range of two and a half thousand miles. In many ways, none of those things really, really mattered. It was the fact that they could carry, well, at the end of the war, they were carrying the 22,000 pound Grand Slam bomb, mm. uh, which was in a, not the biggest conventional weapon dropped during the war. So its, it, its capability was in transporting massive weapon loads. And so a, a typical weapon load would have been about twelve to 14,000 pounds in those early days of the war, which again is a monumental weapon load uh, to be transporting. And if you think that, you know, just imagine those thousand bomber raids uh, in, the, in the middle of the war with, you know, maybe, you know, all, all of those aircraft at Cologne, dropping that incredible weapon load, all of them dropping 15, 14, 15,000 pounds of bombs, incendiaries, high explosive. That it was, uh, um, you, you said, you know, the, the, the terrible nature of uh, war, Alex, and can you imagine what it would have been like to be on the receiving end of that? It's a, and I've got a couple of those descriptions in the book from people who were at Dresden, Hamburg, Cologne, uh, and it, it, it's, it's, Brutal beyond comprehension what was happening in the midst of that total war. Um, for anyone that does want to go and stand next to the wheel and see how insignificant they are size-wise, um, RAF Hendon is probably the closest one to London yep. um, on the Northern Line when you're allowed out of your house again. But one of the key things about them, John, as well, is, is how they're designed to be made. They've done it so that they can be churned out at a, a monumental rate. Um, they're designed, aren't they, in sections so that they can just be manufactured. This is my War Factories hat coming on, sorry. So that they can just be plugged together, um, manufactured in bits and then plugged together. You do this bit of the podcast, Alex. You tell me how they were <laughs> Well, yeah, they were sectioned, weren't they? But I'm always taken as well with the massive amount of people involved in putting the Lancaster into the air throughout the war um, oh. and what an enterprise it was. And I also love the anecdotes, things like um, the amount of people that have been, that were con- conceived war babies in a Lancaster in factories because they were of course dark and private uh, and factory workers took advantage. They were running almost constantly uh, and you know they were, they were made in sections so the larger sections of basically what became tubes, cylinders uh, were manufactured and they could basically be bolted together and that, uh, that helped in the production facilities, the way that they could be transported around to the final assembly place was much easier and of course the way they could be repaired easier as well, uh, more easy as well. Um, but one of the, you know, obviously during the war huge amounts of uh, the men were fighting the war uh, and in the fact many of the, the factories were manned by women with some of the, 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 the male um, employees still there as well. And 
you put men and women, whether it's 1940 or whether it's 1990, or as, it, as we are now in lockdown, 2020, you put men and women together in a confined space uh, and basic instincts take over. And there are a number of stories about, uh, shall we call them liaisons? I don't know kind of this is an X-rated podcast or not. Uh, there's a number of stories. It's fine. Of, <laughs> <laughs> We've had Eleanor Yanniger on with her medieval okay. strap-on, so there is no oh ceiling. <laughs> I don't think you can go any higher than that on the smutometer, so go for it. Uh, there's <laughs> stories about, uh, you know, uh, shenanigans I'm going to call them shenanigans in case my mum listens yeah. um, <laughs> shenanigans going on in the uh, in the sections of the of the Lancaster um in the book itself uh so I've got those kind of stories in the book itself I've also got stories of uh Lancaster aircrew who took their girlfriends on board the Lancaster and literally took their girlfriends on board the Lancaster <laughs> um and oh, there's one really famous story, uh, sorry, a, a largely unknown story in the book, which one of my favourite stories, where a crew, I'm going to divert if that's okay, ladies. Go for it. Um, a, a, the crew, one of the uh, pilots took his girlfriend on a, fl on a full operation. Um, and so she was, I think, a flying equipment fitter. Uh, so she kind of you know, got the guys' parachutes ready and their, their life jackets, etc. And she, uh, she was the girlfriend of one of the pilots. And she was determined to go on an operation to Germany. And so she did. The, the, the pilot snuck her on board a night operation. I can't remember where, uh, where it was now, but it, uh, something like Berlin or uh, something. Um, and uh, she was there over the target as they were dropping bombs. The flak, you know, people, basically it, her life was in mortal danger as the flak was exploding around them. Um, and, but she, you know, she talked about how she really enjoyed it. Uh, but on the way back, and she just she needed to go to the toilet. Now there were basically there was what in effect was a large metal bucket uh, in a Lancaster. Most of the chaps didn't need to do it. Again, we're not going to go down to all the details, but most chaps don't need to use a bucket to sit down to go to the toilet. <coughs> she did, and so she unhooks herself from her position. I think she was uh, right up next in the cockpit, sitting where the flight engineer uh, crammed in with a flight engineer. She unhooks herself, unhooks her oxygen and wanders back down to the back of the aircraft where she can kind of, you know, go to the loo with relative privacy as much as you can in a tiny Lancaster. But without oxygen, she passes out. And so after a couple of minutes, the skipper is saying, where's, what's, I mean, where's Jan? I can't remember what her name is now. Where, where is she? What's, and so somebody is sent back to find her. Uh, and then he, this, this message comes over the uh, intercom. Oh my God, Skip, she's dead. And she's lying on the floor of the Lancaster. Uh, but what she's not dead is they don't realize this at the time. She's passed out because of lack of oxygen. So they've now got what they think is a dead WAF on board a Lancaster. And so they, the, the conversation, this is absolutely real. The, the, the accounts are there. The conversation then is, what are we going to do here? If we take this dead WAF back, we can't get her out of the aircraft. We can't sneak her off. So we're going you know, to have to fess up that we took a WAF on a, a wartime operational mission and we're all going to be in fearful trouble. So the conversation was, right, when we get over the North Sea on the way home, open the crew door and we'll throw her out. Tell Which me is, she heard this. Well, she, <laughs> so they're, they're discussing, right, we, 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 they're still over occupied Europe. And so when we get over um, the, uh, the, the, the North Sea, we'll open the crew door, we'll throw her out. Uh, and that's it. And then nobody will know, you know, she'll have just gone missing from base. And of course, kind of at some point, they're descending lower and she comes round. So she, they, they, haven't, they haven't got lugged her to the side door. 
but the conversation has gone on but she comes round and uh, and suddenly it's all happy and merry again and they land and they manage to sneak her off the aircraft on the crew bus but i don't think she ever fully understood how close she came to dying on a an operational mission because of the flak but b she was about to make a free fall parachute jump without a parachute Dude, I, I'm serious. I don't think her boyfriend understood how close he came to being dead um, at the hands of his girlfriend and not the Germans. <laughs> if she'd have come round and heard him debating booting her out of a flying Lancaster to get rid of her body, um, I suspect he should have been more scared of her than he was of the Germans. In, in his defence, they did think she was dead. Yeah, <laughs> in his, that's, a, that's an airman talking in his defence. <laughs> so, John, tell us, what does it take to put one in the air? Uh, well, uh, you need a crew of seven for a Lancaster. And of course, one of the things that's largely sometimes missed or even ignored is the amount of engineers on the ground, the ground crew, and everybody, all the airmen, all the air crew that I spoke to, were full of praise for those ground crew who looked after their Lancaster, who serviced them, who loaded them with fuel and weapons, who made sure they were in full operational order. And, uh, in all weathers, in terrible weathers, in the winter and in blazing sunshine in the summer, they were always there ready uh, with a Lancaster for them to go and waiting when they come back. But he needed a crew of seven. So you had a bomb aimer uh, in the front of the Lancaster. Uh, the bomb aimer also acted as a front gunner because there was machine uh, guns in the, in the nose of the Lancaster. Coming back from the, the, the nose, you ended up, you had the uh, pilot who sat in uh, the giant cockpit. There was no co-pilot in a Lancaster. There was the flight engineer who had a, uh, a fold-down seat next to... Um, next to the pilot and on he sometimes most of the flight engineers had very very basic uh instruction for maybe not not for any official instruction but their pilots regularly gave them a little bit of instruction about kind of how they how they could just keep the plane straight and level or something like that if something happened to the pilot so that everybody else could bail out uh, you then had the navigator uh with his charts and his maps and his stopwatch behind a Again, just a tiny little screen, a curtained off area. It's, it sounds as like those things giant, but these are tiny little, they're not even compartments, they're just stations. So the navigator had a desk he sat at. Uh, and then you had the, the wireless operator with his equipment. And then you've got the, the mid-upper gunner who is basically sitting in a kind of a sling seat, looking out the top of the, uh, the, top of the Lancaster. Uh, and as you move back, you've then got the, uh, the, the tail end, Charlie, the rear gunner, who's out on his own, I mean, really behind a couple of kind of almost closed doors in his tiny little Perspex turret, almost sitting out, hanging over, hanging over the back of the Lancaster, looking out into the darkness, looking out and down at the target, uh, very much alone apart from the intercom. So the, the, the effort to get the Lancaster into the skies with its bomb load, and always remember the crews were, I'm going to say, dispensable. With the, the sausage machine that produced the crews ground on, it was just producing hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of crews. And the, I mean, it's probably a, a, a moment to talk about the losses of those people. So in, in, in general terms, um, there were 7,377 Lancasters built during the war and over half, over half were lost in flying accidents and obviously on operations over uh, occupied Europe. Of the 125,000, about 125,000 men who served in Bomber Command over the course of the war, 
50, over just over 55,000 were killed. That's an astonishing figure. So nearly half of those who served on bomber command were killed. Now, can you imagine in any modern recent war, the government of the day saying we've lost half of our fighting force, half of an entire regiment, half of a battle group, half uh, of a naval battle group. You just, there, no government could survive those sort of losses, but in bomber command during the Second World War, they were, they were, those losses were normal. They were accepted as part of the, that total war. And so the effort to get the Lancaster war machine into the air to take its bomb load, that's all it was designed for, to take its bomb load to Germany was absolutely incredible. It's just the figures are astounding. Um, tell us about the first time a Lancaster goes into action. Um, so one of the, the, the first operations uh, was to Augsburg. Uh, so not long after the, uh, the Lancaster came into service in 1942. Uh, and it was a daylight raid. So uh, a daylight low level raid, almost unprecedented in actual fact. Uh, and it was in one way, it was only 12 aircraft. Um, but the as regularly happens in warfare, uh, luck conspired uh, against the, the 12 lanks that were heading uh, to Augsburg that day. Uh, and they ran into uh, uh, some marauding German fighters who'd been on an operation. Uh, still, still, they were still in France by this time, not even anywhere near Germany. Um, and the, the German fighters mauled them as they went in. And then they were hit by the most devastating flak uh, while they were over Augsburg, and from the, the 12 Lancasters, eight uh, Lancasters uh, were destroyed, which is again a staggering loss rate. Uh, but it was still claimed as a, a success because they managed to get in and destroy the factory they were targeting, uh, and the pictures came out from both sides, and it set, the, it set the tone, the pace for the bomber war. Of course, very soon after that, we went from those that kind of almost by warfare stands, tiny, tiny uh, operations to the, 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 the absolutely massive operations that began taking the war to the heart of industrial Germany. Can you tell us about some of the men that feature in the book and what struck you about them, Gosh. Uh, the men that you met that flew them and who mm. actually left a mark? Ah, uh, gosh. I think, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to interview uh, quite a few personally, to go and see them in their homes, to sit with them, to, to enjoy a cup of tea with them. And ex although, uh, exclusively, they were humble. Uh, each and every single one of them said, well, I didn't do much myself. Um, but they were part of an incredible machine. So on an individual level, they were heroic and courageous. But as part of the, the Bomber Command war machine, the, the bomber command war machine was heroic and courageous as well. I suppose one of the ones, uh, no, I mean, sadly, many of them uh, have died because they're old men now. Uh, so even after, you know, and I record a number of their deaths within the book. I won't say who they are, mm. uh, but I record a number of their deaths as we move through the book that I hear while I'm writing. So, you know, I'll be, I interviewed them maybe six months or 12 months before and I'm still writing and one of their relatives was here sad to tell you john that uh stan or john or harry or whatever uh died uh recently uh one of my favorites was uh, the man who starts the book ron needle ron was a rear gunner so he was the chap that i took to um to the RAF museum to reunite him with a lancaster that he hadn't seen for so many years ron's aircraft 
Uh, Ron was one of the younger members uh, of the war. He joined a bit later. He was a butcher's boy. Uh, at the uh, well, he was a, he was a 50, he was a teenager at the start of the war, just a, a child really. He then was then a butcher's boy, and he joined I think around 1943, aged 17, something like that. Um, and he became a rear gunner. And in 1945, his aircraft came down in France. Um, and uh, of the five crew, only two survived. And Ron's story of survival that night is astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing how he survived why he survived and who helped him survive. I, I won't spoil it too much. It is incredible. <laughs> uh, his story of survival is astonishing. But then for me, what really struck home as I chatted to Ron, this is about getting them to open up, getting them to talk more freely uh, about their feelings and their emotions, which is what I like to think I can do with them because of my own background. Ron then talked about uh, his... Uh, journey after the war where basically many of these men were suffering from what you would many would basically call post-traumatic stress disorder it wasn't called that then nobody understood what it meant then uh, but many of them suffered some of the effects of uh, post-traumatic stress uh, and Ron certainly uh, as he got older so in the 1980s he couldn't understand why he would feel angry at certain things why uh, songs, music, incidents would take him back to the day that his Lancaster crashed uh, and his friends died. Um, and he then he embarks on a journey uh, of self-discovery where he goes back to the crash site to establish what happened and he finds out what happened, who saved him, how it worked. And I, you know, he is reunited after 50 odd years with the man who saved him uh, and it is the story is heartrending, heartwarming, and heartbreaking. All yeah. in, and it's just an incredible story of redemption. Um, and the story that I tell again, that I start the book with, is about me taking Ron to the RAF Museum to the Lancaster, and we bump into some school children there on a school children's visit. And his interaction with them is, I, I was in tears at the time, and I'm, I'm, my, I'm, my eyes are welling up now, remembering it. Is, is just astonishing how this 95-year-old man is still affected by his experiences. So he, for me, represents what is so good and honest about all of those men uh, who fought that war. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I think um, his is one of the standout stories, or the standout story in the book, um, Stan Shaw as well. But um, I think Shaw. one that really got me um, was Norman Jackson. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Norman, um, 
Norman was a um, uh, uh, part of the, the, the one of the Lancaster crews, and Norman was um, one of the the chaps who won the Victoria Cross. Um, and why did he win the Victoria Cross? Well, the story of his incident is absolutely astonishing. Their Lancaster uh, on a bombing mission is attacked by a German fighter, uh, and an engine catches fire, um, and um, the, the, the crew try to put the engine out using the, the internal fire extinguishers and they don't go out. So Norman volunteers. Uh, and I can, just, I can just imagine this conversation going on in the time, at the time on board this Lancaster with the flames and still in the darkness over Germany with a flak going on. And Norman says, I know what, Skip. I'll get out on the wing and I'll take a fire extinguisher with me and I'll try and put the flames out. So this Lancaster is still traveling at kind of, you know, 200 miles an hour at 18,000 feet or whatever it is. Um, and Norman, uh, he gets his parachute and he, uh, he deploys his parachute in the aircraft. So now his parachute is basically strung out in the aircraft. But what that means is his mates can hold on to the, the, hard, the, 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 the straps of the parachute which would hold the canopy up so from his harness there'd be straps which would go up to the canopy they can hold on to that while he gets out of the upper escape hatch uh, the ditching hatch crawls out along the wing which is what he does he's got his um he's, he's basically it's freezing it's, it's, it's he's in the middle of the night he's got his fire extinguisher he managed to crawl out in a 200 mile an hour wind to get the fire extinguisher and try to put the flames out, but the flames don't go out. And at the same point, the German fighter comes reattacks again. So now Norman is out on the wing of the aircraft with a German fighter attacking them. And so he is hit by shell splinters. He's badly burned by the, the, um, the burning engine. He's thrown off the wing of the aircraft, but he's still attached by the parachute straps. And so his mates are now holding his, what is let his parachute in, inside, and Norman is dangling outside, flapping up and down. If you, you think of a dog's ears out of a, a car window at 70 miles an hour and how they flap in the wind, mm. Norman's doing that at 200 miles an hour outside of, at, at one point. This is, I don't know why I'm laughing because it's not funny. It's, at one it's point, mad. <laughs> one, at one point. So now his crew think we can't, they can't get him back in because the force is too much. So they, They've got to try and let him out slowly in the hope that his parachute will deploy. So they're, they're shuffling forward, trying to let, gradually let him out. And at one point, Norman, is, the, the rear gunner, looks to his left, I think it is, and Norman Jackson is flapping in the wind outside his turret. And I said, what are you doing out there, Norman, type thing? And the crew eventually managed to... Let, let the parachute go and amazingly it deploys but now the parachute has been burnt part of the parachute is burnt and so norman is coming down his parachutes in a uh, slight somewhat on fire his the straps of the parachute are on fire and he's descending into germany and so his hands are really badly burnt at this point and he ends up basically i mean and he hits the ground really hard and he's knocked unconscious but he survives and when he uh, he ends up as a prisoner of war and when he comes home from the war uh, when his because the aircraft goes down in actual fact um, because of the, the 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 engine on fire, so they can't make it home, and all his crew are captured. I think one or two killed. I can't remember the exact uh, um, figures now. Um, when when the, this crew come out of captivity at the end of the war, 
they tell the story of what Norman did and Norman is awarded the Victoria Cross. And it, it is, again, one of the, for me, one of the most astonishing stories of Bomber Command. Yeah, it's mad. That is such an incredible story. <laughs> I re- do you know what I really want to know? I want to know more now about what happened as a prisoner of war, but that is something completely different. I have to grab your book and read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I just, I desperately need to know. But um, what about the people from across the empire? How did they feature in the story of the Lancaster? Uh, the, the people from outside of the United Kingdom were astonishingly important. They came from around the world, from New Zealand, from Australia, from Canada, uh, from all parts of the empire, as it was called then. Uh, and one of, you know, I've got one of the people uh, in the book, Cy Grant, um, came from, um, there's a section called Pilots of the Caribbean. Um, and the, the, the story of people of colour who came to England from across the globe at, th- at that point in the war is astonishing. I mean, Sai, in actual fact, himself ends up, so he became an officer, uh, and you rarely hear these stories about this incredible contribution to the war effort. Uh, he became an officer and ended up um, on Lancaster's, and he was shot down and ended up in a, a German prisoner of war camp. He ended up in Stalagluft III, I think it was, as a German prisoner of war, as a black uh, prisoner of war. And of course, the, the, the German, you know, this was unprecedented at the time. You know, the, obviously they were black servicemen, but to have a, a black officer was almost unheard of outside in the Royal Air Force. You know, they were there, but outside of that, it was unprecedented. Um, and his story about the German prisoner of war camp. Um, The Germans couldn't quite believe it. And he ends up on the front page of a German nationalist uh, socialist party newspaper, his picture. And his description is uh, um, an airman of of indeterminate race because they didn't (laughs) didn't know what to say. Um, And he, but I mean, so, and Sai served this country as well as anybody from this country did, as did all of the other uh, airmen from around the globe, and their story is really important. Um, and many, it was, as I go, this goes off on a completely different tangent, but after the war, many of them went back to their home countries, but a lot of them from the Caribbean came back to the country on the Empire Windrush, on the ship that brought the people from the Caribbean back. Uh, and so they'd served in the country, they'd served in the war, they went back to their home country, and then came back again. And the welcome they received when they came back was not as good as when they'd fought the war a few years later, uh, a few years earlier, which was, you know, by today, if you think about that now, is a, is a travesty beyond compare. Um, absolutely. Uh, tell us what it would be like to fly a mission, whether it's a general overview of what happened, if you want to tell us about one particularly memorable mission. How does it start? They get on the bus, um, they get taken out to their aeroplane, and then it begins. Um, normally they would uh, be out at their aeroplane, they'd be setting everything up and then they'd wait for takeoff and many of them, they would sit around and natter. Uh, they had, sometimes they had their little uh, routines, they, you know, they would, uh, sometimes they had their lucky charms or their lucky routines that they never deviated from. For some that was peeing on the wheel of the aircraft, every single one of them, really annoyed the engineers because it would rot the rubber. Um, they carried their lucky charms, they got on board um, and the routine was almost similar for every operation, whether it was a thousand bomber raid or a 10 bomber raid, kind of taking off, forming up most of the time at night, but towards the end of the war, many daylight uh, operations. Um, And then 
heading out over the darkness. Uh, sometime, you know, if you had seven, eight, nine hundred aircraft in darkness, lights out, for much of the time, you had no concept about where you were in the bomber stream. Every now and then you'd hit some turbulence and that would be the aircraft maybe half a mile in front of you, but you couldn't see it. And they were air-to-air -air collisions uh, because of, you know, the, the, there was no air traffic control at the time. There was no radar. There was nobody seeing turn right, 10 degrees, descend a thousand feet. Not, it was basically what we would call today in the military, the big sky theory. Even if you put a thousand aircraft in the sky, the big sky theory means that you're unlikely to come into contact with somebody else as long as you're deconflicted in time and height. Well, if some, even if you were, there were still mistakes happened, and there are a number of stories of air-to-air -air collisions. But I think that for me, one of the things that I would bring out was the reality of what it was like to be over the target, um, to and for the men themselves. So you know, the the the, the pl plane, the aircraft is being. Uh, rocked by the flak. They're, they're having to fly straight and level as they head in towards the target. Um, sometimes the flak is actually shattering the aircraft, is coming through. Its crewmen regularly are injured by flying flak, killed by flying flak, and there's a number of accounts where, you know, suddenly there's a, a bloodied body drops out of a, uh, the mid-upper turret and sprawls on the floor, dead, a, a gunner dead where they've been hit by the flak or something like that. But Nothing can deviate the crew from that one single aim of getting the bombs over the target. And that, that was its raison d'etre. That's what it was about. It was getting all those aircraft in time, in place, across the top of that target. Uh, and the lie, I'm not, it would be unfair to say the lives of the crew didn't matter, but the lives of the crew were of secondary importance to the war effort. And that was the life of being on a Lancaster. And then when you got home, You'd debrief, what had you seen, what had you done, did you see any Lancasters go down, did you see uh, the target hit, cup of tea, uh, cigarette, bacon sandwich, bacon and eggs, they're coming home breakfast and <clears throat> to bed for a few hours kit, and then if they were on ops, back up again in the middle of the afternoon to do it all again, or if they weren't on ops, back up in the middle of the afternoon, off to Lincoln, off to York, off to uh, the local town to meet their girlfriends, to to meet their wives, to go and have a beer, to celebrate life, to celebrate their survival before going off and doing it again. So what was the view from the ground like? How did the Germans perceive the Lancaster bomber? Uh, they were called terror fliegers, terror fliegers, a terror flyer, terror airmen, because they were killing German civilians. And they, they certainly were. And some of the, the, the stories I have of, from the German civilians of being bombed, watching families die, watching buildings collapse, watching the tarmac on the road melt and people's feet stick in the tarmac, watching skin melt from their hands or people succumb to the flames and lack of oxygen. They're horrific. And uh, there are a number of occasions when uh, airmen were murdered. If they, you know, if their aircraft came down and they, they landed in, uh, in Germany or you know, got into the hands of the Germans, it, it didn't happen. Well, one of the things is we don't really know how many times it happened because we don't, there are no contemporary records of who was, you know, if a crew disappeared on operations, they simply disappeared on operations. So if they ended up in a prisoner of war camp, we found out about it. But for many of them, they have no known grave, no known, uh, we just don't know what happened to them. For many, many, many thousands, we don't know what happened to them. Um, 
And there's a story in the book uh, of um, one crew uh, who bail out uh, and they end up being transported through uh, Fortheim, I think it is, um, where, which has been recently bombed. And they're basically being transported through the rubble by some German uh, troops to be headed off to a, um, a prisoner of war camp. But they have to stop and they're held in a local police headquarters and the German civilians break in, get them out. Um, and the chap that I spoke to about it, Tom Tate, Tom talks about um, they're being dragged <clears throat> towards a barn. Uh, and he said that as, he, as the, the, the crew are dragged towards the barn, he can see hanging from the barn, the rafters, there's one bulb with some basic, some very um, pale light. And he can see nooses hanging from the rafters of the barn. And he knows that they're going to hang them all. Um, and he basically, uh, he's got no boots on because, uh, they, they've been taken off when he was in the, in the police station, but he basically breaks free of his captors and sprints away and he manages to hide and get away from him. He's later recaptured and, uh, nearly lynched again, but the German troops protect him in actual fact, but it subsequently transpires that the rest of his crew were all murdered. Uh, and that happened on a couple of occasions oh, that we know of. There are a number of accounts of uh, bomber crews being either hung or shot or beaten to death uh, by uh, largely German civilians, but sometimes German uh, SS guards or soldiers. Um, and it's a terrible, brutal thing, but it happened here as well. And I don't know if you know, there are a couple of accounts of... Uh, I think during the blitz, I think in South London, uh, of German uh, airmen being lynched, murdered by uh, people here. And it's brutal and even, you know, to just talk about it in those basic terms. But if you've watched your child die, and one of the, the, the Tom Tate's incident, one of the chaps that shot, uh, he shot by a 17-year-old boy who watched his whole family die in rubble under the bombing. Well, whilst, you know, can you imagine how that affects what is a child? And so he's given a gun and told to shoot one of the captured airmen, and he does. Uh, and whilst it's brutal, that's the reality of war. Uh, and, you know, it's whilst one condemns that murder, I also feel for all of those German civilians that lost their loved ones in the midst of this total war. It is like a manifestation, I suppose, of how powerless civilians felt on both sides as they were being indiscriminately attacked from the air, that um, they react in such a savage way if they do get hold of one of the airmen. Um, but you've mentioned, obviously, the Lancaster was built to transport a huge payload. That's what the intention was. That's why they did it. But she did do other work as well, um, like mm -hmm. Operation Exodus or Manor. Tell us a little bit about um, just some of the other stuff they did. Well, Operation Manor was the was dropping food supplies into occupied Holland. O occupied Holland was more or less under siege with the Germans. Uh, there was there, people were starving. People were starving to death. And um, <clears throat> in uh, in April forty five, it was um, agreed that the that we could drop food supplies. And Lancaster bombers were used to drop food supplies, even though you know it, uh, Holland was still occupied. And it was still very dangerous uh, to be doing so. Um, the, the food supplies uh, were started and we were dropping grain, oil, flour um, into, uh, into Holland, uh, saving the lives of the Dutch civilians. But the other thing was Operation Exodus. 
uh, and we're recording this on VED. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, Operation Exodus was going on on VED. Uh, so Operation Exodus was bringing home the prisoners of war. So they were in the order of about 10,000 uh, British prisoners of war, and many, many more tens of thousands of other uh, nations prisoners of war. Sorry, allied, 10,000 allied prisoners of war, but you also had Americans as well. Um, and Exodus was bringing home the, uh, the, the released prisoners of war, and that was astonishing. You know, they, they, we were flying, they were flying in Lancaster. So Lancaster's cramped inside and suddenly they were getting another, they'd stripped out a lot of the equipment. Suddenly they were getting another 10, 50, 20 people crammed into a Lancaster and we were using the Dakotas and everything else to bring them home. So where the Lancaster had been used to take life towards the, uh, towards the end of the war, it was being used to save lives. What do you think is the Lancaster's finest hour? That is a question everybody asks Alina and I don't think I would answer that. I, one of the quotes on the cover of the book is Sir Arthur, Har Arthur Harris, who was the, the uh, Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command. So he described the Lancaster as his shining sword and the greatest single factor in winning the war. Well, you, you're, you're both historians. I never subscribe to one war-winning operation or one single war-winning piece of equipment or one single war-winning um, aircraft. I don't think that you can say that. Everything was part of the war effort. Could the war have been won without the Battle of Britain? Almost certainly not. Could it have been won without the bombing campaign? Almost certainly not. The Arctic convoys? Almost certainly not. The, um, the effort to, to build all the aircraft and the, the armaments? No, it couldn't have been won without that either. Obviously without D-Day, obviously without the push through Europe. You can't single out one thing as a war-winning effort. And on that, I would never single out the Lancaster's finest hour. I would say that the Lancaster's finest achievement was the way that the men themselves operated it. The, the men were the Lancaster's finest hour because they were kids. They were, you know, I would never be so rude to ask how, you, how old both of you were. But the, those men who flew the Lancaster's the average age 22 23 some of them were 18 or 19 some of them a bit older old men they were then in their 30s but for the most part they were teenagers most of them or many of them were virgins many of them had never slept with a woman before and yet here they were taking the war to germany and one guy i spoke to uh uh, who was shot down, his whole crew was killed, but he survived uh, being shot down. He was blasted out of the aircraft uh, over Berlin. And he basically, the aircraft exploded around him, and he was left still sitting, he was the pilot, sitting what he imagined was holding his Lancaster flying controls, but it, everything had gone. He was just in a sitting position over Berlin with a flak going off around him. And he managed to deploy his chute, uh, and, he, uh, and he floated down, uh, into destroyed and under attack Berlin, which was not a pleasant experience for him. But he said that the thing, there was two things that it went through his mind. One of them was that he, he absolutely thought his crew would be dead. He had no doubt about that. He thought his mother would be really annoyed that he'd been shot down. And then he said, the other thing that I thought, I thought, I'm so sad I've never left a child behind. Because he'd never been with a woman. He'd never had a girlfriend. And these were, these were children, almost children, teenagers fighting a war. And for me, the men themselves were the Lancaster's finest hour. I think I completely concur. Um, 
can so therefore put it into context in the war effort how critical was she in terms of britain's victory she was part of britain's victory mm. would the war have been won without bomber command absolutely not would there have been another aircraft if it wasn't the lancaster well, of course there would have been uh, the halifax rarely gets the praise uh, you know we were talking at the beginning of this about the mosquito the mosquito is rarely praised for its role so the lancaster was a key part of the world war ii effort to defeat nazi germany uh, and it was a vital part um, and without it the the course of the war would have been different do you know what i really think alex should answer the last question because i think that that that's it's her question go on alex <laughs> because i feel really bad i feel really not, bad taking it away from you it's not rude or something is it no, no it's no, not no, no, no. It is going to put you on the spot, though. It's closer to Alex's heart than it is to mine, and I feel really bad hogging that question. So (laughs) I'm going to leave it to her to ask you. Do you know what? I can can barely contain myself now. (laughs) Oh, it's not that exciting. Now you've done both, (laughs) Lancaster or Spitfire. Oh, come on. Um, I would... Do you know what? As an airman, as somebody... I, I was a navigator, not a pilot. I would not distinguish... What, what is interesting is both of the books, so Spitfire and Lancaster, I finish both of the books on the words of current Lancaster, Spitfire, uh, Lancaster and Spitfire pilots. So in Spitfires, I allowed um, one of the guys who flies the Spitfire now to finish, and he talks about his love of the Spitfire and how, he, and he was uh, um, Air Marshal Cliff Spink, he was my old boss, um, he's flown everything from the Mustang to the Hurricane to the Spitfire to the phantom and the lightning and the tornado f3 uh, and he said if he had one aircraft um that he could fly if god gave him a chance to fly one aircraft before he died um he would choose the lancaster sorry he would choose the spitfire um and in a similar vein i've ended the lancaster book with a start with the quote from um one of the battle of britain memorial flight lancaster guys um, and he he basically talks about his love of uh, of the of the aircraft, what it meant to him, and what it meant to be able to fly the Lancaster in in honour of the men that went before him. So he said, compared to modern day aircraft, she was difficult to handle, punished any mistakes made, but that was part of her charm. When you flew her well, she rewarded your efforts. On those occasions. It was as if we were guided by the spirits of those we represented. I've had the pleasure of flying many of the RAF's modern aircraft and a few of its historic ones too. It is the honour of flying the venerable Lancaster, which has touched me most deeply. And so when you listen to those two men talking about flying either the Spitfire or either Lancaster, I would never choose between the two of them. I would say they were both part of uh, our great aviation heritage and our aviation history. Oh, you are a true historian in that you can't give a straight answer to anything. Um, but I'm going to gift Alina, because she did that for me, I'm going to gift her a question. Go on, Alina, ask him. <laughs> Sorry, I feel so silly asking this question. Okay, tell us about the Disney connection. The Disney connection? That's a very, very good question. Somebody's really read the book. One of the... <laughs> Well, not all, listen, ladies, not all interviewers read the flipping book before they do an interview, that's for sure. So, well, I'm really, it's been really, I've really enjoyed this. The Disney connection, when, um, 
when we were building the Lancaster, when the factories were being designed and built, one of the things that we had to do was was actually um, uh, camouflage them from the air. So if air German bombers came over or German photographic aircraft or trying to find out where our facilities were, uh, we had to disguise them. And so we used uh, Hollywood um, producers to meld the factories into the landscape. So for some of them, for instance, um, they, they actually built up huge big grass banks up to the sides of the walls of the, uh, the, the production facilities and planted them with grass and plants so that you, you wouldn't be able to see where a large block-sided uh, production facility. They put fake cows in fields. So they looked as though these facilities, in actual fact, were just part of the landscape. And it was one of the Walt Disney film producers who was advising the, uh, the, the government on how to best describe uh, how best to disguise the factories and the production facilities. It was a, an amazing little nugget uh, of information about the overall Lancaster story. So, you know, you can count the rivets. You can count the, the horsepower of the engines and how high it would fly and how many boats were used to attach the fuselage uh, to the, the skin. But for me, it is the human stories of the Lancaster which make the, the story and the book sing in a, in a different way to perhaps other accounts of the Lancaster. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about the most I awesome plane in the history of the world. I'm not taking it back. I refuse. <laughs> Even as a historian, this is the one thing I am definitive on, uh, this okay. and the <laughs> fact that, that gin is, is the best drink ever. Uh, but yeah, so thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about uh, the Lancaster bomber with such passion um, and with such colour as well, like you say, not with stats and facts and figures, um, but actually telling us the story of, of her and the people that flew in them as well. It's been brilliant. It's been my pleasure, Alex Alina. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy to spend VED 75 with you. I'm off to have a gin. Oh, excellent. So yeah, the, su the sun is over the yardarm. It's 11.02. Let's yeah. do it. Join us tomorrow when we will be on our way to Sweden. We're going to be joined by the guys from the Flatpak History of Sweden podcast to talk about Sweden's epic warrior king. We're going to learn all about Carl Twelfth. You might know him as Charles Twelfth. He, he is, quite simply, an absolute nutter and worth hearing about. So tune in for that. Uh, you can now nominate History Hack for an award. If you go to BritishPodcastAwards.com, you can nominate us for a Listener's Choice Award. Uh, you have to do your vote by the 6th of July 2020, uh, and they will announce the winner at the British Podcast Awards on Saturday, the 11th of July 2020. Uh, so if you wouldn't mind, we'd really appreciate it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.